BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hi, all. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. I sing that weird every time. I'm Liv, a giant myth nerd who likes to talk into your ears. Before I say anything else, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who reached out after the last episode. I was worried about throwing in the politics at the end, and especially worried because it's a very different thing to talk about the real world and the bullshit we have to deal with than it is the magic of the mythological and historical patriarchy. Our own, more so now than ever, is terrifying. But so many of you said such nice things, and I'm so glad you all appreciated it, and it seems like, by and large, we're all very much on the same side. So, thank you. To any of you bothered by my including politics, I'm going to try not to do it too often, but you should know from how I speak about the treatment of women in these myths that I am a hardcore liberal feminist, and when there is something happening in the current world that needs to be addressed, I'll do it. Because, especially in this case, I would feel like I wasn't doing my part if I didn't use the small platform I have to express important issues. Do with that information what you will. Now, back to the order of the day. I'm currently working on a bonus Patreon episode that will include me regaling patrons with tales I learned in Athens, primarily just super cool facts. Also, I'll soon be preparing the next standard movie bonus episode where I'll cover the movie Troy, which admittedly isn't a half-bad movie, even if it does take some major liberties with the Iliad. That being said, I haven't watched it in years, so maybe I'll regret what I just said about it not being a half-bad movie. We'll see, won't we? Now, before we proceed to the final installation of the Trojan War series of episodes, let me once again tell you about a very well-timed book. The Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker is, as I mentioned last episode, a novel about some of the women involved in the Trojan War, specifically on the side of Troy. Now, frankly, I don't remember what I said about it last week, but just to be clear, this is no Song of Achilles. There's no falling really deeply in love with Achilles here. 
It's a whole other side to the very idea of the ancient Greek heroes, and one that's quite fitting for this podcast. Hey, what about the women? The book follows our own Briseis and covers what it would be like to be her and all the other women who were taken as slaves and during the Trojan War. It's pretty fascinating and really well-researched. The Greek heroes weren't heroes to everyone, and this is a really interesting examination of that, and I would highly recommend you all read it. It just came out in Canada, hence the timing of this, though I know it has been available to you others for quite some time, but hey, Canadians, go get it. Without any further delay, this is episode 40, The End of the Trojan War. Something about a horse and a heel. Everything is falling apart on both sides. Though, of course, with the death of Hector, things are looking particularly dire on the side of the Trojans. But for the Greeks, they're still mourning Patroclus, and Achilles has really taken everything to a whole new level with his performance in the preceding days. He killed every person in sight before killing the greatest hero the Trojans had, and desecrating his body for as long as he could. You'll recall that when Achilles finally returns Hector's body to Troy, his father and mother and wife and child, Achilles calls a truce. He would allow the Trojans to take the time they need to mourn their prince and to perform all the necessary funereal rites for him to be laid to rest as he should be. Thankfully, the Greeks had also had a chance to do the same for Patroclus, and so Achilles was willing to do it here. But when the truce finally ends, they all have to put on their armor once again and once again, head back into battle. Another battle in a war that's lasted 10 years without ever seeming to really move in any direction. The longest, most arduous and trying experience any of these men have had to deal with. Normally, I greatly dislike the term men when one really means the human race, but up to now, that's all it's been, men. Up. Till. Now. Reinforcements are being brought in by the Trojans. From the north, the Trojans have brought in a group to help them in their battle against the Greeks. A group you might have heard of. The motherfucking Amazons. That's right, the Trojans have brought in an army of badass women warriors because fuck yeah. The leader of the Amazons during this time is Penthesilea, the daughter of Ares. She's exactly what you'd want an Amazon to be. Out to defeat men in battle. Penthesilea is helping Troy because she sought refuge there and had been received. Penthel- I cannot say her name. Penthesilea, you see, has been fleeing the Arenaways, the Furies. I haven't had many chances to discuss the Arenaways, but there's a certain story coming very soon where they'll figure in heavily. Before that, though, the basics of the Arenaways again, better known as the Furies, is that they punished people. Specifically, people who have killed family members, though they are known to punish others as well. But in the case of Penthesilea, she had accidentally killed her sister, the original queen of the Amazons from earlier stories, Hippolyta. Penthesilea had accidentally shot her sister with an arrow while they were out hunting, and so the Arenaways had been after her. She'd been shielded by the Trojans, though, and so she owed them one. 
She returns the favor by bringing in her Amazons to fight the Greeks on the side of the Trojans. Seriously badass. There are so few female characters who are ever in battle in Greek mythology. Well, actually, it's basically just the goddesses and the Amazons. But as annoying as that is, it makes it far more exciting when you finally do have a story of women in battle. Penthesilea was a huge help for the Trojans for a while. She kills a great many Greeks riding in with her Amazons on their horses. I like to imagine a battle cry and they're all dressed up like the Amazons on Themyscira and Wonder Woman. Just crazy, angry, badass ladies. One version of the story tells that she is the one who killed Machaon, who we've heard about before. Though, of course, an alternate version has him killed by a man, because, duh. In similar alternates, because patriarchy. Some of the versions of the end of the war say that Penthesilea actually killed Achilles. Achilles! It said that she killed him, but that Thetis was so worked up about the death of her son that Thetis convinces Zeus to revive Achilles. Regardless of whether Achilles has been killed and then revived or never killed by Penthesilea in the first place, in the end, he is the end of our girl Penthesilea. Achilles runs her through with his sword, She dies instantly, but he isn't finished with her. Perhaps as a kind of disturbed way of dealing with the death of Patroclus, or just because Achilles is a freak of nature, he immediately falls in love with Penthesilea's body. That's right, just her corpse. He falls in love with her corpse, and he keeps it. He brings her back to his tent by the Greek ships, and there he rapes her body. Sorry, fans of Song of Achilles, Madeline Miller leaves this tidbit out. So Achilles proves himself to be a supremely gross and weird, just as we're ending things. There was even a statue of him cradling her body carved into the throne of Zeus at Olympia. Thersites, one of the Greeks, calls Achilles out on being fucking disgusting, and for it, Achilles kills him. What's not talked about, though, in this portion of the mythology is the obvious mental suffering Achilles is going through. Like, dude needs some therapy because he is losing his damn mind. Anyway, Achilles kills one of his fellow Greeks for, you know, pointing out that Achilles did indeed rape a corpse. Thersites, though, is related to Diomedes, and so then Diomedes, too, loses his shit. Seriously, the drama that goes on off the battlefield is the most ridiculous of all the stories of the war. But in the end, Achilles and Diomedes reconcile, though Achilles had still killed one of his own, so he has to sail off to a nearby island to have himself purified. Because remember, you can kill anyone you want in Greek mythology, so long as you find somebody to purify you for it. Another who comes to the aid of the Trojans against the Greeks is Memnon, who comes from Ethiopia. He's a giant of a man, the son of Eos, a titan, who wears armor specially made for him by Hephaestus, so a formidable guy to go up against. The Trojans are pulling out all the stops in the absence of Hector. Memnon faces Achilles, both sons of goddesses. Thetis and Eos plead with Zeus to save their sons, and Zeus does as he did at the end of Hector's life. He holds up a scale, and he puts a portion of death for each man on either side. Memnon sinks toward the earth, and Achilles kills him. The last man that Achilles would ever kill. 
At this point, the Trojans are really panicking. Achilles has killed Penthesilea and Memnon. The Amazons are lost without her. Both their hardest core warriors brought in to defeat the Greeks, and they're dead. They have no one else, at least no one who's good enough to fight the remaining Greeks. So Achilles is certain they're about to be victorious. All the Greeks are. They rush into the city, ready for it to fall. But up on the city's wall stands Paris, with his bow held high. Apollo heads down from Olympus and puts himself into Paris's body, so both the god and Paris himself are jointly controlling the actions. Paris aims his bow at Achilles' chest, but before he can let loose the arrow, Apollo redirects the aim to Achilles's ankle. I know the word is heel, but it's really that tendon in your ankle. The heel's below, anyway. Apollo remembers Achilles' history. He knows that this is the only part of Achilles' body that can be pierced, the only part of his body that didn't get fully turned immortal by his mother, Thetis. You remember, over many nights, Thetis held her son by that tendon in the ankle, just above the heel. She holds him there, and she dips him into a cauldron full of a potion that will turn him immortal. But before she can complete it, she's interrupted by her husband, Peleus, who just saw his wife dipping his son in a cauldron. So Achilles is almost entirely immortal, save for that one spot. Paris lets loose the arrow, and it flies directly into Achilles' tendon, piercing through. And sure, that's not exactly a death blow, but when you're immortal, save for that one spot, hitting that one spot seals your doom. Achilles' life leaves him there in the dust inside the walls of Troy, so close to where Patroclus has died, and Hector, the heroes of the Trojan War. A fight immediately erupts over the body of Achilles. The Greeks want him so they can take him back to their camp, pay their respects, and perform the necessary funerary rites so that he may pass safely into the underworld and not be left to roam as an aimless spirit forever. And the Trojans want his armor. Not only is it particularly good armor, handmade by Hephaestus himself, but, I mean, it's Achilles' armor. Glaucus, on the Trojan side, goes for him first, but he's stopped by Ajax. There's a whole fracas over it, but in the end, Ajax kills Glaucus and safely retrieves Achilles' body and brings it to the camp. The Greeks do what they need to do. They mourn over him, and Thetis and the Muses cry and cry, and eventually he's cremated as he should be, and his ashes are put in an urn alongside his beloved Patroclus, where they'll stay together forever. And everyone just conveniently forgets that time that Achilles fucked a dead woman's corpse for absolutely no reason. But there was still the matter of Achilles' armor. The Greeks want it too. It's all the things I mentioned before, and so... Once they have Achilles back, Odysseus and Ajax fight over it. They are, after all, Greece's most successful remaining heroes. They'd done the most damage to the Trojans after Achilles himself. In the end, Athena chooses my main man Odysseus to be the one to receive Achilles' armor. 
he is her favorite. Others say that it might not have been Athena, though she had a hand, that in fact it was the leaders of the Greeks who would decide, and spies were sent to listen at the walls of Troy to who the Trojans considered to have done the most damage. That version says that the spies overheard a group of girls talking about what happened, and one of those girls was inspired by Athena to name Odysseus as the most impressive of the Greeks. Whichever weird version, it's Odysseus that wins the armor of Achilles. Even though Ajax proves himself an incredible warrior during the entirety of the war. Remember, there are only a few names that have been with us throughout this, and fewer that have drawn minimal criticism from myself. But old Ajax is one of them. And sadly, Ajax doesn't take this loss well. There's no doubt it's some major PTSD talking here, because Ajax stumbles away from this event as though he's drunk. One source suggests that it's brought on by Athena, though it's less clear why she would make him mad like this. Regardless, Ajax is raging, muttering to himself, not able to walk straight. He goes straight into a flock of sheep and begins killing them randomly, believing them to be Trojan warriors he needs to fight. Finally, he comes to, realizing what he's just done, and in a world where there's no help for such obvious PTSD, instead, Ajax one of the greatest heroes of the Trojan War, this large man who did so many great things in the endless, endless war, makes his way to an empty beach and digs the hilt of his sword deep into the sand and falls forward, impaling himself on his own sword. And thus the phrase, fall on your sword, is born, and another death that's actually pretty depressing. Ajax was pretty cool. Also, I hear that that's the name of a cleaning product in some places, because he was so strong and powerful, and man, how clever. It isn't available in Canada, and that's a damn shame. Even though it seems that all the best of the Greeks are dying tragically, the Greeks as a whole are still vastly outdoing the Trojans. The Trojans are scared, cramped together inside the city walls, just waiting for the Greeks to capture or kill them all. At this point, my main man Odysseus captures a prophet from Troy, and he asks him what the Greeks need to do to finish this once and for all. They're all ready to go home. There's been enough death of their best heroes to last a lifetime. Odysseus is really the only one still worth rooting for at this point. The Greeks learn that in order to defeat Troy... Finally, they need Heracles' bow and arrow. A bit of backstory. There was a major Trojan War before this one, the more famous Trojan War. And that war was waged by Heracles. You remember him, zero to hero and all that. Well, Heracles' bestie, Philoctetes, being a human and not a satyr, as Disney might suggest to you, sailed to Lemnos after that Trojan War, as Heracles becomes a god, and he keeps the bow and arrows with him there. So, the Greeks set sail for Lemnos. They bring back with them Philoctetes and the bow and arrow, and the promise that it will be him that can use the bow and arrow to defeat Paris, the murderer of their precious Achilles. But this comes with a note that they would also need Neoptolemus in order to defeat the Trojans. Neoptolemus is the son of Diadamia and Achilles. If you've read the Song of Achilles, you might remember this a bit better, but Didamia is the woman that Achilles has sex with when he was hiding out on the island of Skyros, trying to avoid the Trojan War in the first place. 
based on the chronology we know, I think that that would make Neoptolemus still quite the child, but these details don't really seem to be of concern here. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. As soon as Philoctetes arrives on the beaches of Troy to help the other Greeks, he gets right to business. Apparently, he had a wound that legit hadn't healed from that last war, so first they heal him up, then he goes straight to Troy. He proposes a kind of duel by using a bow and arrow with Paris, who accepts. Within moments, Philoctetes had shot an arrow through Paris's hand, then through his eye, and finally through his ankle. The kill shot in the Greek world, apparently. But Paris doesn't die immediately. He pulls himself back into Troy with his own people who try to heal him. They take him up to Mount Ida, where he begs a nymph to heal him. But this nymph is his ex-girlfriend before he left her for Helen. So she wasn't super keen on saving his life. She lets him die. Some versions say she regrets it after, but regardless, he dies. Don't fuck with women, dudes. With Paris dead, of course, the immediate next step is to marry Helen off to another Trojan. Because what is a woman without a man, I ask you? Both Helenus and Diophobus, princes of Troy, want to marry Helen. No one asks her what she should want, of course, but Priam supports Diophobus. Helen, meanwhile, finally gets an itty bit of agency when she makes the call that while Paris is dead and so in theory she's single again, she was married to Menelaus in the first place. She tries to return to him. I'm going to take that as her attempt to end the war now that Paris is dead, but I say that without evidence. She's caught, though, trying to escape Troy, and so Diophobus gets to, quote, marry her by force, which sounds not at all like marriage, but rape. Ah, the wishy-washy language used to describe the lives of females. Thus, Helen is now married to Diophobus. Poor fucking woman. But still, even with Paris dead, it isn't yet over. 
The Greeks learned from a prophet of Troy that the only way for the city to fall is for the Greeks to steal an important talisman, palladium, sacred to Athena. Honestly, this seems like a really important aspect of this final countdown to the end of the war, but everything I read is pretty unclear. So basically, it seems like Odysseus and Diomedes break into the city of Troy and do manage to steal the palladium from the temple of Athena. Though at some point, maybe Priam announces it was fake, but it's just unclear about this stuff. Either way, this stuff is both important and seemingly not. The next and final plan to finally defeat the Trojans forever comes from Athena, of course, and to Odysseus. She whispers to him this plan. The Greeks will build an enormous, hollow wooden horse. It will be big enough to fit their best heroes, Odysseus, Diomedes, Neoptolemus, Menelaus, among others. The men take their places inside the hollow wooden horse. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Greeks burned down their camps, camps that had been on the beaches of Troy for a decade, and take their ships and sail out of sight. It would appear to the Trojans that the Greeks have simply given up. They decided that they'd won enough by killing Paris, had dealt with their camps, and returned to their homes, finally. So this is what the Trojans saw. Burnt camps, no ships, and simply a large wooden horse that the Greeks had seemingly left behind. But they had also left one man behind, who's taken captive by the Trojans. He tells them that the Greeks had left, that he hated them and hadn't want to return with them. He tells the Trojans that the horse is left behind as an offering to Athena, that the oracle had told them to create an offering so big that it couldn't be brought into the city of Troy, that if it were, it would protect the city forever. There's much debate amongst the Trojans. Should they trust this? Should they bring the horse inside the city, ensuring it would be safe for all the years to come? Enter Cassandra. Cassandra is the daughter of Priam and Hecuba, a princess of Troy. She's beautiful and brilliant, but those around her believe her to also be insane. Mentally ill, I should say, but they certainly consider her crazy. The truth, though, is that she's simply different. Cassandra has the gift of foresight, but the curse that all her predictions will not be believed. She tried to warn her family about the return of her brother Paris, that it would spell the end of Troy. But did anyone listen to her? So now... With the wooden horse at the doorstep of the Trojans, it's Cassandra that tells them not to trust it, not to bring it inside the walls of the city. She's assumed to be crazy once again, and the Trojans simply laugh off her fears. But Cassandra isn't alone in distrusting the wooden horse left behind by the Greeks. Laocoon, which up until now I just googled it, I've always pronounced Laocoon, is a priest of Apollo watching this all go down with his two young sons. Laocoon was so suspicious of the wooden horse in their midst that he throws a spear at it. The spear sticks in the side of the horse, and a hollow sound echoes from within. But still, the Trojans don't suspect anything is amiss with this enormous wooden horse left behind by the Greeks. In an instant, two gigantic snakes slither out from the sea, 
They go straight for Laocoon and his two sons, coiling themselves around their bodies. And before anyone can try to help or even express shock at this random occurrence of snakes emerging from the sea and attacking people, Laocoon and his two sons are crushed to death. And thus, the basis for one of the most incredible sculptures from ancient Greece. Just unreal. I think it's in the Vatican Museum. I saw it first when I was probably 16 and truly haven't stopped thinking about it since. Between Cassandra's vehement warnings and Laocoon's distrust and immediate death, one would think that the Trojans might take this time to reconsider their options of the wooden horse. But alas... The Trojans take the death of Laocoon and his sons not as an omen against the horse, but instead as one suggesting that the gods are angry that the Trojans haven't already brought the horse into the city. Ah, interpreting the gods, am I right? So the Trojans, having just witnessed this straight-up terrifying death, immediately bring the horse into their city. They leave it in the city square overnight. But not everyone is as trusting. Helen and Diophobus have questions about this mysterious horse, and so they walk around it, slowly inspecting it closely. Helen, clearly showing that it's the women who know what's up, call out to each of the Greek warriors. She makes her voice sound like that of their wives, who the fuck knows how, and calls the names of Odysseus, Diomedes, Menelaus, everyone. But inside, they're being directed by my main man, Odysseus, and he is fucking smart and awesome, and he makes sure that the Greeks don't fall for Helen's ruse. They stay inside, quiet as can be. They aren't wearing armor, even, for fear that it would make a sound and give them away. Finally, they give up and leave the horse alone. The entire city celebrates the apparent win of this decade-long war, and they let their guard down getting all drunk and eating too much. Helen, though, still suspects that it is in fact the Greek warriors hiding inside the horse. So instead of getting drunk with the rest of the Trojans, Helen prepares for what she's sure is coming. In the quiet of the night, the Greeks sneak out from the hollow wooden horse and begins spreading across the city of Troy. Neoptolemus goes to the palace, killing everyone he sees. He cuts through the guards and eventually makes his way to the remaining royal family, killing them all. Odysseus and Menelaus goes to Diophobus's house, where they'll find Helen. Menelaus up till now has been preparing to kill Helen for what she'd done. But when he finds her, he manages to sneak a peek of a boob, and so he changes his mind. Because, you know, dudes. So instead, he takes her back to his ship. And with this removal of Helen, the Greeks begin to deal with the other women of Troy. Most are captured to be enslaved and raped. But for those who are more important, there are worse things in store. Andromache, Hector's widow, is decided to be Neoptolemus's prize, but he doesn't want her child, Astyanax, so he throws him off the top of a tower. 
Neoptolemus is fucking awful, in case that isn't abundantly clear. Cassandra, she who tried to prevent all of this bloodshed from happening in the first place, fled to one of Athena's temples. But the other Ajax, not the one we liked, finds her there. He rapes her in Athena's temple before she becomes the prize of Agamemnon. Agamemnon will take her back to Mycenae once this is all over and the Trojans had been dealt with. Polyxena, who was apparently the most beautiful princess of Troy, isn't assigned as prize to anyone at first. The ghost of Achilles appears to the Greeks and demands that she be sacrificed so that he may have her. Nobody bats an eye, and Neoptolemus happily slaughters Polyxena for his father. And Hecuba, queen of Troy. Well, Hecuba is the subject of a little play called The Trojan Women, and we'll get there. So the Greeks slaughtered every Trojan man and many of the children, whoever they spared or taken to be slaves for work or for rape. And yet it's the Greeks we love still, somehow. Finally, after all this time, the Greeks sail off, each to their own homes. Notably, Agamemnon makes his way with Cassandra to return to his wife and children in Mycenae. Agamemnon expects that Clytemnestra, Orestes, and Electra have been waiting patiently for his return. He expects that they've all gotten over the death of Iphigenia by now. You remember, his daughter who he sacrificed so that the wind would bring the Greeks to Troy? Agamemnon expects a warm welcome. And Odysseus, well, Odysseus expects that he'll be back home in Ithaca in no time. He misses Penelope and his son Telemachus, who has grown up without him. My main man Odysseus, you remember, actually loves his wife a lot. He's one of the few where there's actual descriptions of Penelope and that he loves her. He is, for the most part, a good dude. But unfortunately, it's going to take a while for old Odysseus to make it home. Oh, and Aeneas. You remember Aeneas, one of the best warriors of the Trojans had. Aeneas listens to Laocoon, unlike everyone but Cassandra. And that very night, when the Trojans are about to drag the horse into the city, Aeneas snuck away, carrying his injured father on his back. Still carrying his father, Aeneas travels all the way to... Well, we'll get there. Thank you all for listening to this, the end of the Trojan War. We'll still be covering some of the results of the war. There are so many stories that stem from this war. But finally, the fighting is over. New characters are coming along and some of my all-time favorite Greek myths. Needless to say, I'm excited. Now, there's one thing I've thought about as we do this war. Trojan condoms. How could I not, you might ask. Well, I, my question is this. If a city was famously infiltrated, famously bad things you didn't want got in without your knowledge, is that a name you'd want to give to condoms? I just feel like that's the opposite of what you want in a condom. 
Anyway, things I think about. Now, for this final episode, I consulted one of my usual texts, The Greek Myths by Robin Waterfield, but also The Greek Myths by Robert Graves. Clever titles were not these men's fortes. Regardless, there's an interesting note in the Graves telling of this story. They're actually very different versions, and I kind of had to meld them all together in a comprehensible way. When it comes to Penthesilea, the badass Amazon woman that, sadly, has only a short role in this story, it's possible that she originally was actually included in the Iliad. The Amazon's inclusion in the war is depicted in a great many statues and friezes of the ancient world. It seems that their involvement was pretty widely accepted. That and Achilles' supremely gross and weird reaction to Penthesilea's death, Graves notes, is very Homeric. He suggests that she might have been originally included in passages in the Iliad, but was a victim of Pisistratus's editors. Now, Pisistratus is a name that is familiar to me from my studies, but, you know, nothing from university lasts forever. So when I read that note in the graves, I did a little digging. This dude is interesting. Sure, he's one of the more famous Greek tyrants, so I probably should have remembered him without Googling, but I didn't, okay? Also, just an FYI, at that time, being the 6th century BCE, tyrant is a term they used for their rulers. It didn't yet have the connotation that we give it now. Not all tyrants of ancient were, well, tyrannical. Some were just chill rulers who did their thing. Pisistratus, interestingly, was the founder of the Panatheniac Games, which is something I read so much while in Athens, all while trying to master the pronunciation of the word, I probably failed. After that, he worked to attempt the first definitive collection of Homer, hence where his editors come in. So he worked to put together all the stories from Homer that had been passed down for another 200 or so years before he came along, and to put them all into what we know of as the Iliad and the Odyssey. Fucking fascinating, just so cool. Anyway, maybe he had some extra patriarchal editors who couldn't have a woman in there threatening Achilles, so they removed Penthesilea entirely. But again, that's all speculation based on one note from Robert Graves, so don't hold me to it, but it is cool to speculate. Again, thank you all for listening. You're all the best. I would always appreciate if you would rate and review this podcast on iTunes, particularly if you liked it. If you didn't and you just want to bitch at me, just send me an email if you have to. Just don't put it out there. Why do you do that? Anyway, thank you all for dealing with this 12-episode run of the Trojan War. We're getting to the real interesting stuff now. The war was crazy, but everything after is crazier. Thank you all again. I'm Liv. I fucking love this shit. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? 
because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.